Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm Dr. Kelly Jones. And this is Big. Strong. Yes. Welcome to Big Strong Yes, the show where we share our journey of reading three books that are inspiring us to embrace courage, creativity, and the call to adventure. Rising Strong by Dr. Brene Brown, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, and Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes. We are most active on Twitter, so follow hashtag Big Strong Yes for announcements and discussion. Follow me at Lonnie Diane Rich and Kelly at Dr. Kelly Jones. You can also email us at bsy at chipperish.com. And if you are a Patreon supporter, we have a Big Strong Yes chat room on Discord where we both hang out, but mostly there are just people in there loving each other and supporting each other, and it is a magical place. It really is. So yeah. It really is. It's intimate. It's private to the Patreon supporters who go into that room, and unlike Twitter, you can go over 140 or 280 <laughs> characters, so join us at patreon.com slash chipperish. Yes, and thank you to everyone for the support you've been giving the show, for participating with us online um, your tweets your graphics your comments everything means so much to us and it's so wonderful to see you all kind of going through this process with us especially now that we're getting into this creative section and people are kind of exploring the different ways in which they can be creative it's just wonderful but if you enjoy big strong yes and you would like to see more people also enjoy it please go to apple podcasts and give us a review it is the single most powerful thing that you can do for any podcast that you love absolutely so the reading we will be discussing today is big magic permission from your teachers to the central paradox and next week's reading is big magic part four persistence taking vows to tristam shandy dives in Go to chippers.com and search Big Strong Yes Schedule to find all the information about what we're reading and when. Yeah, so we're making our way through this book. It's feeling kind of serious now. We're yeah. getting into the and, depths. And I, I realized, too, we're about halfway through this book. Yeah. Which means we're about halfway through this show. I know. It's kind of crazy. It is. It's kind of yeah. crazy. I know, it's been it's sort of a hell of a ride. <laughs> it, it certainly has. No, it certainly has. All right. So how did your homework go for last week? Well, <laughs> we, we're, we, were, we were in a little bit of vague homework territory. Yeah. Um, so my homework was to cultivate creativity as a daily ritual and vaguely as all hell to think forward in my life in ways that I haven't. Mm-hmm. And as usual, I was getting ahead of myself. Um, (laughs) And I think that the romance of fairy dust is so appealing to me that it was easy to gloss over the work of the farmer, right? Mm -hmm. To use two of Elizabeth Gilbert's metaphors. Right. And I think right now I need to do a little more farming. Uh Uh-huh. So it's, it's hard to have a daily ritual for creativity in a house that I haven't finished unpacking. Yeah. Or arranging. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, like, I can't light candles when they're still in boxes. Yeah. You know, and Mm -hmm. while thinking forward in my life is important, living my life as it is today is also important. And I don't want to minimize that. Mm -hmm. So I kind of think I need to put on the farmer's hat for a while and take care of things and take care of me while I'm at it. 
Yeah, no, I can you know? definitely see that. Yeah, it's just my whole thing, clearing the decks, you know. Yes. So, and you don't want to like, the thing with creativity is that so often we we put it off until everything's perfect, right? We have right. to wait until we have ev- absolutely everything. Per- and that's just not how it works. But mm-hmm. there are times when our life becomes so overwhelming that you really do have to take care of like the big stuff before you can get into the creative stuff. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, I do need to clear the decks and I need to decorate the decks. And, (laughs) but I think unlike what I would have done in the past, I don't need to put the creativity on pause. Right. While I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. So the 20 minutes a day is doable Mm -hmm. while still being a farmer. (laughs) Right. The the 20 minutes a day is still doable. Mm-hmm. you know, while getting this other stuff done. So yeah. I think it's just good to to kind of put that in perspective. And, um, but y'all, I got to get these boxes unpacked. I know. <laughs> like, it's just, I got to so get it hard. done. It's so, I mean, I moved into this house three, four years ago, and there's, I've still got boxes that haven't been unpacked yet. <laughs> At that point, you know, you just throw them away. Like whatever was in that box, obviously I didn't care that much about it. <laughs> yeah. But it, I think, and it comes from, as a kid, we mm-hmm. moved so much oh, um, right. that the sight of a box drains my creativity Mm -hmm. and so for me like I need to get this done oh Um, sure so it's just it's just kind of funny but yeah I I actually I need to go find like a farmer's hat and just put it on and do some work oh absolutely you know yeah so how about you (laughs) how was your homework well my homework was also like really vague um it was uh, last week my homework was to cultivate my sense of personal entitlement <laughs> and um you know like a writing you you must be this tallest like mm-hmm. that I can do like that's very specific and it gives me a thing and th- this cultivating my sense of personal entitlement I knew when I said it that it was vague and I wasn't really going to get anywhere with it so you know whatever um but aside from that like it has just been it's been like a really tough week I mean one one of the toughest weeks I've had yeah. since this whole thing you know first began and and personally I've been feeling just a little bit at sea and that is just hell on creativity you know and on entitlement too I think you just feel beat up so mostly you know my homework for every day this past week has just been getting through the day Mm -hmm. so that's what I did I got through the days and um and I may not be glad at the moment but I think I am stubborn you know I'm gonna I'm gonna get back up I'm gonna keep doing what I do it's, it's how I get through, you know, and the work always saves me. It's been a crappy, crappy week. And then I got down to the work today and I started to feel better. You yeah. know, I took a day off every now and again. I have to take a day off and I hate those days off because they're miserable and I hate them and I'm just miserable all day long. But then I get into the work the next day and I have energy for it, which is something that I start to run out of at the end of a long run. I would say I take one actual day off probably like every month. You know, you're going to need more of those. (laughs) I'm going to need more of those, but God, they're miserable and I hate them. So, you know, and I believe that someday that's going to be better. Someday I'm going to be able to not work and, you know, have a day off and not feel completely miserable the whole time. (laughs) Um, But, you know, until I get there, until I'm at that space, I'm just going to hunker down and I'm going to get through the day. You know, I'm going to get through each one. I'm going to try to find as much positivity as I can in every day. And, uh, and just push my way through it. And I think it's, it's part of this process. Like, you know, it is an up and down process when you go through, I mean, it's, it's the grief cycle, but it's also recovering from trauma and abuse for a really long time. Mm 
And so recovering from that is, is a really difficult process. And it's something that I have to allow myself to do. I always want myself, I'm like, I have a good day. And I'm like, okay, from here on out, it's nothing but good times ahead. I'm always going to feel great. It's always going to be great. And that's just not how it is. And I have to accept that. So that's, that's part of, of the process that I'm in right now. But, um, but I have to say like doing the work and my work is essentially creative, especially the stuff that I do for Chipperish. It's not writing a novel, but it is creative work. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I love like it and it, it feels good so that's that's where I want to get myself back to yeah those people that wrote the grief cycle for us I need mm-hmm. them to write a trauma one because yeah you know I hate roller coasters yeah like with a fiery passion mm-hmm. because that's what it feels like yeah to me and you know you're up and then you're down and then you're slung to the side and you cannot predict it and you cannot control it and mm-hmm. I hate it um but that that's kind of what it feels like, you know, and you're doing that in tandem with a grief cycle too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, you know, and then there's all this paperwork and stuff that I've had to finish up and I've, I've done all the really, really hard things, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that when you've got so much work, you know, it, it can, it can kind of take over and the work becomes a thing you hold on to. It's the life raft, you know? And then when, when I start to clear those decks, then there's there's stuff waiting for me you know there's there's trauma and there's recovery and you know there's so much stuff waiting for me to like process and it's so hard and it's so much and I just want to watch tv shows and drink my wine and say smart shit that's all I want to do you know? <laughs> so that's kind of what I'm I'm trying to get back into and I'm trying to maintain as much evenness as I can you know, during the tough days, you know, um, to, to make that work. But yeah, it's, it's been a little challenging. Well, how were your reflections this week while you were going through that? Uh, well, you know, while in the fetal position, um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, my life this past week has, has felt kind of like, uh, surviving a storm, you know, you just batten down the hatches and you hold on and you wait until it passes. And, you know, there's a dampening effect on creativity during that time. And so I haven't been thinking much about, you know, what we've been talking about with the creativity so much is just like waiting to kind of get through it, yeah. you know? And I mean, I am thinking about what I need more than I think I ever have, which Good. isn't a lot, but it's still more than I ever have. Um, and I think that that kind of works with my sense of entitlement, you know, like with this positive sense of entitlement. Entitlement is such a bad word. It's so it's so negatively connotated, you know, um, for good reason, because there are a lot of entitled people out there who don't deserve what it is that, that they need, you know, or that they think they deserve, you know. Um, but when you need something, you deserve it. When it's something that you need to get through the day, when it's something that, that you're working hard for, then yes, you do deserve it. And it's so that kind of, that sense that I am, again, it goes back, you know, as we always do, it goes back to self-worth and value and entitlement is kind of linked into that you know that you have to have a sense of your own worth and value in order to to reach for that entitlement so the people who have you know an extended sense of their own value and and what they deserve and who take things that they that they don't deserve and that they don't need just because they feel they should have it you know that's the kind of entitlement that we're used to you know so I kind of wish that we had a different word for it Um, but it's really just about you know I have this value these are the things that I need and I'm going to make sure that I have the things that I need so that's kind of what I'm working on right now good so that's pretty much me what what's going on with your reflections this week so I've been hurting for you and if I could take the pain off of you I would 
Um, and I've, I've been struggling with need as well. Like that mm-hmm. is such a hard thing for me to say, this is what I need. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think opening back up to creativity and emotion goes both ways because when you feel joy more deeply, you feel pain more deeply too. Mm-hmm. And usually I focus on doing the things. I get a lot done. I accomplish a lot. And the last few months have been full of doing things. You know, I started a new job. Mm -hmm. My son started his senior year of high school. I've been traveling for work, teaching a new class as an adjunct professor. I moved into this new house. And I think I reached a point of, like, decision and action overload. Oh, yeah. And this podcast may have opened the door for, like, (laughs) emotional and creative overload, (laughs) which has been good and and very much needed. And most of that emotion has been you know really positive Mm -hmm. um but this week there's been some sadness and I think trying to set up a house when you're single is hard Mm -hmm. and some of that loneliness has hitting me in a way that it hasn't before and usually that would disconnect me from creativity and create a break that might last months or longer (laughs) but I'm not gonna let that happen this time and I think that her idea of stubborn gladness is a hell of a thing Mm -hmm. so I can feel sad and still write you know and I can feel sad and still stumble on a great used piano and play again oh yeah you know (laughs) um I can feel sad and still find joy in poetry so like trying to keep my arms around creativity and dance through sadness is a new way of being but it's better I like that I like that a lot. That's really good. Well, I'm glad that you're, you know, I mean, you are, you have gone through so much and you're doing so many things. I'm not at all surprised that you're experiencing overload, you know, but I think that, yeah, feeling the sadness. I mean, one of the things about shutting down emotionally, that's nice is that you don't have to feel that sadness, but then when you open back up and there is that sadness, like how to deal with that, you know, becomes that in itself can become really overwhelming. Yeah, I don't like that part so much. Yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> like, can I just, I, I just want to cherry pick off the menu and be like, I would like this and I would like to skip that. Exactly. <laughs> it, I know. You know, it like going back to Rising Strong, you know, mm-hmm. we can't selectively numb. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's just par for the course. But, yep. but having the awareness now to understand that that doesn't have to cause a separation from creativity Mm-hmm. I think is is powerful and helpful, you know, and 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 very good for me. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I think that's really good. Yeah. So I'm I'm excited. I know your creativity has has been uh, kind of flirting with you a lot. Yeah, I'm flirting back. So we're <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's very good. So we'll see how it goes. But yeah, it was funny um, yesterday. So one of the things that's missing in this house is I still haven't bought like a TV stand or anything for the (laughs) living room. So I went out shopping, like determined to buy this damn thing. And what I found instead (laughs) was a used piano. (laughs) I know. That's so cool. For like a hundred bucks. And it's in great shape. You know, did you get it yet? Yes. Well, it's mine, but we haven't brought it to the house. Oh, So I'm texting my son and informing him that he is now in charge of picking up and delivering a piano. And he's answering me like, WTF, mom. (laughs) No, man, you got a big boy child. I know. (laughs) I'm like, well, (laughs) he's 
He's like, what is going on with you? Oh, I love it. But I'm so excited about, you know, having it and playing again. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's just something sort of delightful in that. And I still didn't buy a TV stand. Oh, that's okay. You got what was important. And, you know, because you needed that TV stand, you went out and you found this piano. It seems to me like that was sort of faded. Yeah. That was something that you needed. You were brought to the thing that you need. You know, for those of us who like to believe in fate having a hand in anything, you know. Maybe so. Uh, yeah. Maybe so. so. I saw it as like a present to the creativity. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think we'll that's see. nice. So. Well, do you want to dive into the reading? Sure. Let's go ahead and dive in. Okay. <laughs> we'll start with the uh, the bit on your teachers, which I thought was really interesting because she had gone through this whole thing, you know, about how you don't have to go to school. You know, creativity does not require that you go into like major amounts of, of debt. It's just, you know, if you want to do something creative professionally, you just do the thing. You know, you learn how to do it by doing it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of liked what she was talking about is that the teachers are out there for anything it is that you want to do. And on page 108, she says, aspiring writers are lucky in a way because writing is such a private and cheap affair and always has been with other creative pursuits admittedly it's trickier and can be far more costly and it can because pretty much with anything else you've got to buy you know the materials to create whatever it is that you're going to create you know Um, or there are some things that in order to learn how to do them you you have to find somebody who can train you how to do them you know Mm -hmm. writing is something that kind of is is inborn to to us but not everything else is like if I wanted to be able to sing I'd have to go out and find myself a singing teacher which I still haven't done you mean do anything with that. when you want to do that not if right right right, right. yes mm-hmm. exactly um, but you know if you want to be a painter you've got to go out and buy canvas and you've got to buy paints and you've got to you know so it can be really expensive and it can be a little bit daunting and then trying to find somebody to like teach you the technicals can be really difficult but one of the things that I love about this new digital age that we're in is that YouTube is such a fantastic source to find teachers, you know, YouTube and podcasts, you know, um, I think that teaching is a calling, you know, people who really want to teach, like there are a lot of teachers who became teachers because that was, you know, what they thought would be a good profession for them or whatever. But there are, there are teachers who are just born that way, you know, Mm -hmm. who are just born to teach and born to like share what they know. And, um, and I think those people, people who are called to teach will always reach out to find available students, you know, and between the internet and YouTube, you can find teachers for pretty much everything. You just have to hunt and kind of look around and find the ones who are truly good at what they do and truly good at sharing, you know, that knowledge. Um, And often you will find those people teaching for free or teaching a certain amount of what they do for free because they're passionate about it and they care about it and they want to share that information. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. In, um, in social learning theory, there's a, a theory called social apprenticeship Mm-hmm. That's kind of the idea around people teaching what they know, surely, you know, for the passion of it. Mm-hmm. And there's a theorist called James Paul G who writes about affinity spaces. And he really talks about this in terms of the digital age where the things that you have an affinity for, you know, whether that's for teaching that thing mm-hmm. or learning that thing, that the digital mediums give us these affinity spaces for sharing you know that teaching and learning Mm -hmm. so youtube is an affinity space and a podcast you know is an affinity space where we can come together and and teach and learn you know and it's this beautiful social learning world that is just fascinating to me um but i think you're absolutely right and it it opens up 
learning creative art in a way that we didn't have before. Yeah, I mean, you really you have so many sources of people who can teach you what they know, you know, mm -hmm. and when you when you come across somebody who really knows what they're talking about, like you can feel it and you get really excited about the knowledge that they have and what they can teach you. And that can be really fun and really thrilling. And it's YouTube. Yeah. You know, so I mean, like it's it's out there. There's so much material that's out there that is free, but where you're still learning, you're still educating yourself, you know, and we have access to so much information. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to know, you know, which people are like really like know what they're talking about and which people are just kind of out there. But like generally I found that the people who charge right up front and who don't give you anything without getting your money first usually don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Or they're not in it for the right reasons. They're not in it for the right reasons. Right. or Yeah, but, like, my experience has been, in general, like, the people, like, I've found people who've been really, really good at what they do, um, and they tend to just want to have the information out there. And, I mean, they'll charge after a certain level. You know, right. if you want to go deep, um, mm -hmm. they'll charge for that. But, um, but I find, like, a lot of people just are so excited about the material. Those are the ones who are really passionate about it and really passionate about doing it right. And, uh, and they will usually have, you know, a lot of stuff out there that's accessible and free. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, and then going backwards a little bit, from the digital, you know, age back into old material. Yeah. I really loved on page 109, she said, do you want to study under the great teachers? Is that it? Well, you can find them anywhere. They live on the shelves of your library. They live on the walls of museums. They live in recordings made decades ago. Your teachers don't even need to be alive to educate you masterfully. And this reminded me of the movie Goodwill Hunting, mm -hmm. which I love desperately. Yeah. <laughs> And, and kind of, you know, the student who was not at the university learning everything at the library that mm -hmm. the students who had access to the university were not learning. Yep. And I think for me, you know, three of my greatest teachers have been Madeline Lingle, Mary Shul Shelley Wollstonecraft, and Virginia Woolf, mm -hmm. all of whom have passed. Mm -hmm. You know, but what they've left, I can still learn from as deeply as I want to engage, you know, with their words. And there's just something incredibly powerful about that self-directed learning that you mm -hmm. can apply to your own creativity, you know, so oh, I think absolutely. it's, you know, it's, it's amazing that we can go backwards into the classics and then forward into the digital. Mm -hmm. It's just a great time to be a creative person right now. Or to be, yeah, just to be a learner. Yes. To learn things. There's so much access to information and it's it's unprecedented in human history absolutely and to to be of to have that kind of information and and the knowledge of other people available to you it is uh, i think that you know for you know centuries and millennia to come they're going to look back on this transition phase you know in human history and just see it as such a pivotal moment you know, in human development because of all this information that is available now, which I think is a really exciting thing to get to witness. Oh, yeah. And there are, there are data scientists who measure this to mm -hmm. kind of show that human knowledge is growing exponentially. Yeah. You know, like if you go back to Shakespeare's time, like the number of words that were available and you compare it to now and, you know, just the, the amount of knowledge that's growing and our access to it is so amazing. And it just is so, such an amazing time to me and to kind mm -hmm. of study like how that has grown since the invention of the internet and, and the World Wide Web and all the things that it has given us. But it still is a matter of self-direction mm -hmm. at some point and internal motivation. Um, and on page 110, she said, eventually your teachers won't be there anymore. The walls of the school will fall away and you'll be on your own. 
the sooner and more passionately you get married to the idea that it is ultimately entirely up to you, the better off you'll be. Mm-hmm. And so I do think while we have access to pretty much anything we want to learn, we still have to be self-directed in that learning. So shaping our own curriculum or taking our own action or taking our own risks is still on our own shoulders. Yeah, because you still have to do the thing. Yeah. And you I can't learn like anything. That. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I, I like that. I like being in charge of my own direction, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah, no, I like that. And I mean, I think that you really have to be able to, it's it's enough to study it, you know, studying it is great. And that's, it's great. You can learn all that sort of stuff. But when you're talking about a creative field, you know, you really need to, to actively engage with the thing and you need to create because you can learn a lot from other people about how they have come through this, how they, what they have learned about how this particular, you know, creative adventure works for them. But there's going to be a specific way that it works for you and you can't discover that until you do the thing. And I think the only way to find your authenticity is to do the thing. I mean, we start, everybody in every creative field and every creative endeavor starts out by mimicking the people that they like, yes. by mimicking the people that have inspired them. And that is such a valuable and important part of that process, um, which is why fan fiction is such a fantastic thing. And I am a thousand percent in support of people writing fan fiction. Me I think too. that's great. It's a great way to get started. Um, but that's how you learn. You mimic somebody else and then you learn how you do it. You mm-hmm. know, you learn more about yourself and you have to engage with your own work and your own creativity in order to learn those very essential things about yourself and you become your teacher and then oftentimes you find people that are trying to do the same thing Mm -hmm. right and she kind of talked about that with the fat kids yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) so what did you think about that with the that section when she was talking about that group um, you know, I thought that was great. And I remember, you know, when I was when I was first starting out writing, you know, I, I joined uh, RWA, Romance Writers of America, met amazing, wonderful people through that organization. I had a really good time. Um, but the the writing groups, for me, at least in my experience, were so, so valuable at the beginning. Mm-hmm. When you're really not sure and you're kind of going through this, you're trying to figure it out and to be with other people who are at the same place that you are in the process. I think that having that community, especially for people who are doing, you know, engaging in a kind of creativity that is, you know, is somewhat isolated. I think writing is probably one of the more isolated ones. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're making TV or movies or anything, it's, that's automatically a collaborative process. You can't really do that by yourself, you know. Um, but any of those things that you can do by yourself feel you feel somewhat isolated. So having a community of people who are kind of in the same space that you are, um, as far as where they are in that creative process, can be so incredibly, incredibly valuable. Um, but I have always found those things to be very temporary um, because different people move at different at different paces some people kind of outgrow the group you know and move on from it and then other people sort of come in and and they're sort of newer and they're not in the same space um so it's one of those things that that like especially when you've got a very tight kind of critique group you know a handful of people where you're reading each other's work and you're critiquing each other's work that I have found this to be my experience and and many of my writing friends have kind of um cemented this idea for me that it is a lovely lovely thing but it is temporary yeah. And and I think you kind of have to accept that it is temporary and enjoy it while you have it, but that uh, people grow on 
from that that space um, and they move forward and it's just everybody moves in different directions with their creativity and so that kind of thing can be really really beautiful but you know my experience has been it doesn't it doesn't last that long yeah well it's funny I've never been in a writer's group but I enjoyed <laughs> the stories that she was yeah. sharing in this section um, and it made me laugh because she talked about waiting tables and mm-hmm. I was a waitress and I was like the world's worst <laughs> worst waitress but on page 113 she said the rewards had to come from the joy of puzzling out the work itself and from the private awareness I held that I had chosen a devotional path and was being true to it mm-hmm. and this is what theory and research is for me yeah so there is like a deep joy in understanding complex ideas deeply mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily have to share that with anybody else mm-hmm. it's just internal to me yeah, but it's starting to feel like there's a connection to di- to divinity there for me too, and I don't quite know what that means yet. But it it's still fuzzy, but it's it's there, and it came up a lot in this chapter, which I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> but also in this, her description of travel and adventure, which <laughs> was also true when I read Eat, Pray, Love, made me realize that I am very short on experience with travel and adventure. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that has to go on the life list too. Yeah, no, that's absolutely like the next phase of my life is going to be travel and moving around and, you know, just seeing things and, and getting out there. You know, I've had yeah. my stable lifestyle that I've had to maintain for my kids, you mm-hmm. know, and now they're getting older, you know, and they're getting ready to, to grow up and move on. And at that point, like, I feel, I feel really excited to change the way that I can live. Yeah. You know, the things that I can do, things that have, have been not really possible for me just simply because I, I needed to give my kids as much stability as I could. Um, you know, it's, it's it's an exciting kind of thing to look at. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So so then we move to Werner Hernaz chimes in. <laughs> <laughs> Werner Herzog. <laughs> like, what, what, what did you, what notes did you take here? Oh, God, I loved this. Um, you know, he, he definitely, you know, uh, gave some tough love to, to uh, one of Liz Gilbert's friends who was a filmmaker and had written uh, Werner Herzog a, um, uh, you know, a letter about how nobody appreciates him and he's not getting anywhere and it's so frustrating. And I love just the response uh, that came in on page 115. Quit your complaining. It is not the world's fault that you wanted to be an artist. It is not the world's job to enjoy the films you make. And it's certainly not the world's obligation to pay for your dreams. Nobody wants to hear it. Steal a camera if you must, but stop whining and get back to work. And I kind of, I like that tough love. I mean, I know it sounds like a really, really harsh response, but that's the kind of thing I think that creative people need to hear. Mm-hmm. You know, that that it is a choice like and, and, and Elizabeth Gilbert spends a lot of time kind of talking about this choice between are you going to complain about how hard it is or are you going to to love the work and be grateful that you get to do it? Yeah. You know, um, and and so I think that when it comes to creativity, you know, nobody owes you just because you did this thing doesn't mean anybody owes you love and adoration and money and success and security and all of that. You know, you created this thing and it was important that you created this thing. But again, it's like that outcome thinking, you know, Mm -hmm. once you release the outcome, once you let the outcome be what it'll be, you create the thing. And then as soon as you're done creating that thing, you go back and create the next thing. 
you know, when you, when you're able to do that, like that's when you're, you're kind of in harmony with the creative universe. Oh, I like that. You know, and, uh, and when you're living out of harmony with it, that's when these things, I think get really tough. And so like, you know, Werner Herzog, I see him as just like smacking this kid back into harmony. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and on page 116, she said, Mm -hmm. I think it's a mighty act of human love to remind somebody that they can accomplish things by themselves and that the world does not automatically owe them any reward, and that they are not as weak and hobbled as they may believe. And this, to me, is the definition of teaching. Yes, absolutely. So I just thought it was fantastic. Yeah, you know, I mean, you've got to, and as a teacher, I think you get used to that. There's a point where you really have to to push people and Mm -hmm. let them know that they are, they're better than that. Yes. You know, I mean, one of the toughest things I ever had to do, I had this, uh, this group of grad students, and they went out and they shot all weekend for their project. And this was a boot camp experience. So it's six weeks. Like they have no time. They've got to get this stuff done. And they spent to spend a whole weekend. That's a huge amount of your, you know, temporal real estate there for that project. And they came in and I looked at their stuff and I was like, no, I don't accept any of this. You're going to have to reshoot everything, oh, you know. ouch. And, uh, and I was like, this is what's wrong. This is what's wrong. This is what's wrong. You got to go back and reshoot it. And, um, and I felt really terrible about it. Like, even as I was doing it, as I was Werner Herzogging my way through this whole thing and being so mean, like I was so tough on them, you know, and inside my little marshmallow heart, because I think my students, any of my students who listen to this know I'm, I'm a big marshmallow. I try to be all tough in class. You know, because I know that people need this, but when it comes right down to it, like I'd rather be inspiring and encouraging, but there are times where you really need to kick people in the pants. And I did that and I was like, you have to reshoot. And they were all mad and they were upset. And a couple of them cried, <laughs> <laughs> but they came back like a couple days later with material that was exponentially better. Yeah. You know, because they knew that I knew they could do it. You know, if you know somebody can't do it, you know, then you just kind of like Tim got I've been watching a lot of Project Runway mm-hmm. and he does this all the time where he's like, look, if I didn't think you could do it, I would be like, well, do what you can make it work and move on, you know? Right. And he's like, if I'm giving you a hard time, it's because I know you're better than this. I know mm-hmm. you can do better than this, you know, and I want to make sure that you do it. And I think that that's part of being a creative teacher is knowing when to be really, really tough. And I hate it. But I was so proud of that team. Like they came back and they and they were so proud of themselves and they really did it. They pulled it out. Um, but it's hard to do. At least it's hard for me to do. I think some teachers come to it more naturally than I do. Yeah. Well, I can do that all day long. But <laughs> you're good at that. I'm such a marshmallow. I really am. I love celebrating their successes. I hate kicking them in the pants, but it's got to be done. Well, it has to be done because <laughs> otherwise no one will ever understand their own capability. You know, if you make yeah, it easy for them. Yeah, because what people are capable of. Right. Like, people are capable of so much more than they think they are. And when they work to what they think they're capable of, you know, that's nothing. Right. That's a drop in the pan. Right. So you have to you have to push them so that they pull from themselves what they can really do. And I, I mean, I think that these kids were more surprised than anybody by what they pulled off. You oh, know? absolutely. And, uh, and it was great. And I loved it. And it was so wonderful afterward, you know. But in the moment, they were crying. I almost started crying. Like, I felt so bad. Oh, no. I would I'm never. such a marshmallow. I mean, like, I, I had <laughs> a group of high school seniors once. There were three boys in that class. And I'm telling you right now, I <laughs> I called the three of them in my classroom and I wore them out. I mean, these were three football players and I made them cry like kindergartners. 
And they came back <laughs> an hour later. They had gone out to the football field, picked me a bouquet of wildflowers, and written me an apology. And Aww. I got the best work out of them for the rest of that semester. And I was like, damn right. And you're going to yeah. keep doing this shit. And you're going to come back next year when you're in college. And you're going to do this again. Mm-hmm. And, and Because I, I will not tolerate your work being less than what it should be when mm-hmm. I can see how smart you are. Mm-hmm. Like that drives me crazy seeing people do less than what I know they can be. Mm-hmm. I, I just cannot tolerate it. And, yeah, well, yeah. that's why you're a good teacher. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's what makes it like, honestly, it's out of all the things that are required of being a teacher. That is the thing I struggle with the most. Oh, you know, it's it's really hard. I put on a big show. I come in on the first day and I'm like, this is how it's going to be. I'm not putting up with any bullshit, you know, <laughs> like I do my whole thing. And by the end of the semester, they always figure out what a marshmallow I am. But I'm able to keep I'm able to be tough enough, you know, during the semester yeah. that I can push them to do to do good work. And but yeah, sometimes it's tough. I do believe in encouraging. I mean, I, I am, yeah. you know, I will encourage them all day. And, and there is a line of being too hard. Yes, absolutely. You know, but the professors that have had the most influence on me I mean they have certainly encouraged me but like my dissertation chair when she was Mm -hmm. editing I think we had just both gotten to the point where we were completely sick of each other (laughs) and she she gave me back a draft and on one of the I had this one sentence that like everybody was stuck on Mm -hmm. and I was holding on to it and I would not change my position and like everybody was sick of it and she had taken this red pen and written on the entire page. I still have it. Like, I'm going to frame it one day. She wrote, this is not your best sentence ever, exclamation mark. <laughs> and I was like, damn it. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes that's what you need. And mm-hmm. so, like, I remember that more than all the encouraging stuff that she said even, but I needed the encouragement too, yeah. you know, but mm-hmm. sometimes you have to be pushed yeah. and, and I will push when I have to push. Mm-hmm. So, but I, and I love this kind of gangster spirit that yes. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about when she gets into the trick section mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on page 118. She said, I believe enjoying your work with all your heart is the only truly subversive position left to take as a creative person these days. It's such a gangster move because hardly anybody ever dares to speak of creative enjoyment. And in the book, I just wrote, damn, it feels good to be a gangster. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a phrase I wouldn't even know if it wasn't for office space. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that idea about like enjoying the work being a subversive act, you know, that was, that was a really nice way of expressing it. And, you know, she was talking about this, this whole thing about complaint, Mm -hmm. you know, and she's like, there's so many on page 117, there are so many good reasons to stop complaining if you want to live a more creative life. And I think that there are a thousand really, really good reasons. Um, But, you know, there's a difference between like feeling the source of the complaint, acknowledging it, allowing it its space, you know, like fear in the backseat of the car and allowing it to be your excuse not to try. I mean, there's a difference between those things, you know, like one of the things that I think can happen is that if you're told you shouldn't be feeling something, then you decide you won't feel it. 
and then you ignore it and you repress it and you deny it and it ends up becoming a bigger problem. And, um, and I've been kind of dealing with this in a lot of ways because that's how I've lived my entire life so far. Of course, it's, it's worked out lovely for me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so I'm trying to find another way now at this point, um, rather than saying, okay, it's the wrong way to feel. I won't feel this way. Um, I was listening to an episode of Oprah's like Super Soul Sunday podcast or whatever. I've mm-hmm. been listening to that lately. And a lot of this stuff I find personally, like, I love Oprah. I love Oprah. You know, I'm big, big fan. I think she's great. But she is, you know, seriously woo woo for me. And, and I'm also like, look, I know the first like 20 years of your life were tough, but you have had comfort and security <laughs> and wealth and fame and all of these things for such a long time like I don't know that she remembers like how hard sometimes things can be not that her life can't be hard of course it can but still you know so much of her super soul podcast stuff I I find to be like annoying a little self-satisfied kind of good sounding bullshit you know Um, but there was this one episode and I cannot remember who it was she was talking to it was a man Mm -hmm. Um, but there was this advice that that I found really helpful um, that instead of like resisting the negative feelings and saying Elizabeth Gilbert told me no that I'm not going to feel this thing so I'm not going to feel this thing never works because you know you can't help what you feel you need to just allow it you know Um, and so this person I can't remember who it was said that instead of fighting the feeling which keeps the negativity attached to you because you're constantly resisting and pushing it back um, you let it run through you you know Mm -hmm. and I kind of imagine it like whenever I have these really bad feelings, this this sadness, this, this anger, this depression that I feel like ordinarily I would push away and deny and say, I'm not going to feel that, you know, um, I imagine it like a shaft, kind of like a, a sword made of energy, you know, and it just goes right through me, like right at my heart, you know, um, and typically the feelings that I don't want to feel, I stop before they go through, I'm pushing them back. And so I'm, I'm continuing that engagement with those feelings, even though I don't want them there, you know, I'm resisting them. But I imagine them now running through me, you know, I bear it for the moment, you know, for the moment, like when you when you dive in on one of those, you know, polar bear ice challenges, right? (laughs) You bear it for the moment. It's really cool. And then it runs through me and I, I imagine it just exiting through the back of me. You know, so it's behind me and it's moving away from me rather than constantly coming at me and I'm constantly pushing it back. And and there is a relief sense to that. You know, it's like I have allowed this thing, but I have not given my power over to it, you know, which is what you do when you resist. You're giving your power and your energy into that thing. So I've been doing this with a lot of very, very different, very difficult things. And um, I've actually found it to be really, really helpful. And so the one thing I would say is like, yeah, you don't want to give in to that complaint. You don't want to give in to that whining and that sense of "Ah, it's so hard, you know, but Every time, you know, you feel that coming at you, you know, instead of resisting it and saying, no, I'm not going to feel this way because Elizabeth Gilbert said no, let it run through you. Like, let the complaint run through you. Let the outcome oriented thinking, let it run through you, but let it exit, you know, and see if that doesn't make it easier to kind of walk away from if you've allowed it. I don't know. Does that make sense? I love this so much. (laughs) You have no idea because you just lit my brain on fire and... (laughs) The temporariness of this mm-hmm. is gorgeous. Yeah. Because when you are describing this, I see this as standing in front of a pool mm-hmm. and diving in and coming in on the other side. Yeah. Because it's temporary. 
but you're going to swim through it. And just, but you have to allow it. Yeah. And just, as long as you resist it, you're still engaging with it. If you allow it to run through you and exit out the back, then it's gone. I love this. Yeah. I don't know. I have found it to be really helpful with some really difficult things lately. You know, things that are just like when it gets, it gets too hard to bear because I resist it a lot. I resist it because I've got work to do. I've got shit to do. I don't have time, right. you know, but when I allow it, it runs through me. I hold down, you know, I just hold on for a minute until like that storm passes and then you can get up from it and you, you've allowed it. It's, it's space, you know, cause that's what it wants from you just to be acknowledged, you know, and if you're feeling something, then you have a genuine right to feel it. Right. You know, I'm not saying you don't have a right to complain, you know, that mm -hmm. it isn't hard. I'm saying that it's not, it doesn't help. It doesn't get you anywhere, you know? Um, and I, I like what she says too on page 117. She says, every time you express a complaint about how difficult and tiresome it is to be creative, inspiration takes another step away from you, offended. It's almost like inspiration puts up its hands and says, hey, sorry, buddy. I didn't realize my presence was such a drag. I'll take my business elsewhere, you know? And I love that, you know, because it's, it's, you can have the complaint, you can have the feeling, and sometimes it is hard and sometimes it is discouraging, you know, but at the same time, like you let that run through you and then the inspiration that you want to come to you will be like, all right, you're in this, I'm in it, let's do it, let's dance, you know, yeah, and I like that. I love it. That's fantastic. Yep. Mind blown. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> so... Then she started talking about pigeonholing. Yeah. So what were your thoughts on this? Well, I love where she starts. On page 120, she says, I cannot even be bothered to think about the difference between high art and low art. Amen. Um, and I absolutely love that. And there's an important thing to keep in mind, too, is that, you know, this idea of I don't want to do anything if I can't be great, if I can't be one of the greats, that is such ego-oriented thinking. You know, that in order for me, this to be worth my time, it has to be, you know, the most exceptional piece of work in human history, you know. Yeah. And, um, and the thing is, is that being great is a random distinction placed upon work by other people. Mm -hmm. You know, Jane Austen is great in her time. Nobody really thought so. Right. You know, that wasn't until after she was dead. Um, one of the great works of the 20th century, The Catcher in the Rye. I hate it. Me too. I, I find it to be self-indulgent, privileged white male twaddle. Me like, too. I absolutely hate it. Me too. I get why people think it's great. I understand why people think it's great. Salinger was actually able to capture an experience and express it beautifully you know and I get it it's just the experience itself is self-indulgent privileged white male twaddle you know and I have no time for that <laughs> um but if the world had been living to my particular tastes at the time that Salinger wrote Catcher on the Rye he would have gotten no notice at all you know would that have changed the essence of the work no it still would be what it is so greatness doesn't matter I mean not everyone can be great or it loses its meaning and let's not forget you know Harper Lee was burdened by her greatness right. because she did that one thing that had so much weight on it. She couldn't work anymore, you know? Yes. And I mean, that's a really heavy carry. Yes. So, you know, I find that to be one of these things. And again, like the greatness of it is that outcome oriented thinking, you know, if I can't be the best at this, then I'm not even going to bother because only being the best is worthy enough of me and my time. Like, being, you know, having fun, doing something interesting, doing something cool. Like there's so many different things that you can do. And you have to think about how much art that you've loved that has not been considered 
great art, but that has like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right? Yeah. People are starting to see it for what it is now. You know, they're starting to recognize that this is truly a genius work. But I mean, you know, so many people just make fun of it. When you talk about Buffy and they just give you this look like, seriously, you're going to talk to me about Buffy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, like other people may not necessarily see all the greatness that is there, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. And had Joss Whedon been like, well, nobody's going to respect Buffy the Vampire Slayer, so I'm not going to create it. We would have all lost out. Like, you don't know what this thing is going to be when it's done. You don't know if it's going to be great or if it's going to be shit. You don't know until it's created. And once it's created, you put it out there and it is what it is. Let it be what it is, you know, and then just move on to the next thing. Well, and I really love the idea of pigeonholing as something not to allow others to do to me. Yeah. And also as a way to monitor my judgment Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, Yeah. And on page 120, she said, it has all humbled me far beyond the ability to judge anyone's potential or to rule anybody out. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the line that bad teachers cross or yeah. bad mentors cross, you know, or artists cross when they start mm-hmm. judging the potential of someone else. Yeah. Um, and it, it, this is just important in terms of staying open both to your own capability and to that of others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's really important because that's one of the things like when you're a teacher, your job is to judge the quality of the work. You know, I mean, that's like that's what you have to do and you have to tell them what's working and what's not. Um, but one of the things is that like there are especially in creative fields, like there are things that this student may be doing that you may not understand. Right. You know, and that they may not have the ability to really express as well as they could, Mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, one of the things I do, like uh, in my screenwriting class, I make the students come in with five pitches, right? They can't come at me with one pitch, you know, because your laziest idea is always the first idea. Like you got to push yourself, you know? And, um, but I always tell them, I'm like, pitch your favorite one first, you know, not the first one you came up with, but out of all of these things, what's the one that you're most excited about? And then if they're really excited about it and it doesn't work, I will spend the time with them trying to find a way to make that story work you know and I'm like if what I do to make that story work ends up taking out away from it what you're excited about you know we're gonna have to find something because you have to show me that you have the basic understanding of narrative theory down and maybe you can work on this later you know but but I don't want to say that it's not good right you know that there isn't something of value there it's just that this has to be like you know we have to meet very specific criteria it has to be a 15 minute film you cannot tell a 200 year Irish family saga which believe it or not somebody pitched to me once um, (laughs) in in a 15 minute story Um, you know there's, there's so many things that you have to keep in mind for this specific form, but it doesn't mean that you can't find a way to make that story work in another form in another space, right. you know? So it's, it's one of the really important things, I think, as, as a teacher, you know, as a mentor, mm-hmm. to, to not tell people that, that, you know, this just isn't any good. You know, it's just never going to be any good. It's that, you know, there may be things that you need to do to make it work for this particular form that you've chosen. You know, you may not be ready to tell this story yet. Um, but, you know, build yourself up and, and go there and do that thing, you know, because you don't know. I mean, I had one kid, God, who had just struggled the whole semester and was writing stuff that was not that great, you know. And by the end of the semester, I was like, okay, you know, let's just get her through. Let's push her through to the end. And she ended up writing the best story the best final project of that entire class that year and I didn't see that in her in the beginning because I can't see everything well but damn she had it I think for me though it's it's beyond like judging the product or judging the work Mm -hmm. and always keep in mind that it is never my job to judge the potential of the person 
Right. Mm -hmm. Always staying open. My job is always to encourage the potential of the person. Exactly. No matter what. Meet them where they are. That's right. And encourage them from there. Absolutely. You know, and I think if we did that for each other more Mm -hmm. in creative ways. Right. That we would all be better off. Well, and it's it's insecure people. Like the people who tell you that you're no good, that you'll never amount to anything, that you might as well just quit. Those are the people who are insecure. Right. Anybody who's in, who's like secure in their own abilities and their own talent is is happy to encourage, you know, everybody else and is happy to see them, you know, do what they're doing and, and mm-hmm. find whatever it is within them. And, you know, this may be kind of a definition of badassery that we haven't talked about that I think <laughs> may be fitting here. Like yeah. that may be what it's about. Um, but she talked about that a bit in the Funhouse Mirror section mm-hmm. um, on page 122 when she was talking about Eat, Pray, Love. She said, I figured people might mock it for being so terribly earnest. And I was like, oh, God, do I get this? <laughs> yeah, I, I am about as earnest as they come. Um, but on page 125, she said, and what if people absolutely hate what you've created? Just smile sweetly and suggest as politely as you possibly can that they go make their own fucking art. Then stubbornly continue making yours. And I wrote, oh, hell yes. Absolutely. Any wonder I want to kiss this woman. No, I think it's wonderful. (laughs) And the thing is that like Elizabeth Gilbert has gotten so much hate. Yes. Like so much hate from, I mean, and, and a lot of it from other women. Yes. You know, a lot of it. And so I always found that interesting, mm-hmm. kind of in a sad way, because I've I've responded so positively to her. But Elizabeth Gilbert does a lot of the things that women in general are discouraged from doing. Um, she loves herself. Yes. She is kind to herself. She allows herself, her responses, her reactions without checking them against a million possible criticisms before she expresses what she thinks. Um, She has learned not to care what anyone else thinks. And we as women have been trained to do the opposite of all that. Yeah. You know, and so to see someone just throw away those shackles and say, fuck it, Mm -hmm. can sometimes, I think, feel I mean, you know, without meaning for it to, I think it can feel like an insult. Yeah. And it can feel like, oh, so I have to sit here and, you know, curl myself up into the tiniest pretzel and take up no space. Right. But you can just stand there and be glorious right. and acknowledge yourself, you know. But the thing is, that, like, we all can do that. And we all should be doing that. And she loves who she loves. Yeah. Without apology. Yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's something that I think a lot it's, of women give her a hard time for. It's really, it's hard to see somebody do that, you know, um, when you feel like you can't. Yes. And I think it's just because we feel like we can't. It's not that we can't, you know, I mean, these are invisible shackles um, and she just threw them off. And so I look at her and I say, I think like this is inspiring to me, but I can see where people would look at her and, and go, you know, who the hell do you think you are? Yes. You know, I mean, and, and we as women, like, we do that to each other a lot. Yeah, we really do. We really do. And the title of this section got me thinking about self-perception a lot um, because a friend of mine says, I have an internal funhouse mirror, but it's <laughs> it's one that's not fun at all. <laughs> yeah. And so it always presents kind of this flawed view of myself. And I have to wonder, like, how that's intertwined with creativity, but also how that's intertwined with you know with these handcuffs that are very real and and when I see that in her I see it as inspiration you know and certainly 
want to see her more, do more of that, you know, and I find it inspiring, but I struggle with it in my own life, you know, and in my own self, but it makes me sad to see her receive the kind of hate and backlash that she has received for the kind of work that she's doing. Yeah, no, it's, it's been highly, highly critical. And I've seen a lot of the criticisms and some of them I can see, I can see how she's not everybody's cup of tea. And I think that that's great. I think the more genuine you are, the less mass appealing you'll be, you know? And I think that that's fine. Um, Some of the criticisms I've I've felt have been truly unfair. Um, And, uh, and, and I, I like that she's not burdened by those criticisms. You know, she's like, this is how you feel. This is what you see. Then that's what you need, you know? Um, But I I really like the way that she approaches herself and the way that she is so kind to herself. And I I take that as an inspiration, you know, something that I would like to learn to do. And I think that like your internal funhouse mirror, I mean, obviously I've got the same thing, right? You know, we've been, we've been working through this since the beginning. Let's not, you know, pretend here. Um, But I think that if we could, if we could just see ourselves with the kind of generosity, you know, that Elizabeth Gilbert sees herself and sees others, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there was this, she talks about this woman who was, who was inspired by her, you know, the restraining order she put on her abusive husband and how she left, you know, and, and this kind of comes back to this idea that the work isn't about you, right? Like they take the work and and they do with it what they need it to be. They, it becomes what this person, this reader needs it to be. And on page 124, she says, it may have been easier for her somehow to believe that her burst of resolve and strength had come from me and not from herself. Yes. That this, the, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert had done nothing. None of her experience had been even remotely like that. But because this woman saw that there, she was able to get away from an abusive relationship, you know? And, and the thing is like, that is why you create, this is like the, the positive side Mm -hmm. of not owning the outcome, Mm -hmm. you know, is that here Elizabeth Gilbert was able to kind of stand in a space and sort of be a thing that this woman needed to dance around the maypole. She needed to dance around, you know? (laughs) And, um, and she didn't own that response, but she didn't take it away from her. She wasn't like that never happened. Like she knew it never happened, but she didn't take it away from this woman, you know? And I think that this is, this is why you create because you don't know what, I mean, she did that with no idea that she would, uh, you know, inspire a woman in an abusive relationship to get out of it. Like that was not her intention. That was not even close to what she was doing, but that's what happened, you know, because she created this thing and put it out there. So your creations are a gift, to everyone else out there and how they use them is really not your business, you know? And one of the things that we talk about a lot in, in criticism, narrative criticism is this idea of death of the author, right? You know, that like, if, if I'm looking at the book and I see something there, then it's there whether the author intended it or not, you know? And I think this is death of the creator. Like you create something and how people use it and the creative ways in which they use the thing you created. It's not your problem. It's not your thing. It doesn't matter. Right. And I I like the vision of the maypole as kind of a symbol for what she talks about in the next section Mm -hmm. um, of it being, you know, magical, but also not too serious. So when when she talked about, you know, we were just a band on page 126, Mm -hmm. she said, some of my most transcendent moments have been during episodes of inspiration or when I'm experiencing the magnificent creation of others. And yes, I absolutely believe that our artistic instincts have divine and magical origins, but that doesn't mean we have to take it all so seriously. And I like the challenge of holding two disparate ideas as true at once in my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I really like that idea of kind of magical and also lighthearted, you know. Yeah. Um, But my most transcendent moments seem to happen, like, in the natural world. You know, the moon and shooting stars and comet showers and the Rocky Mountains and thunderstorms and oceans and cliffs and, like, drama and beauty on the earth and above it. And so Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what that says about creativity, but it's this emerging connection to divinity again Mm -hmm. that I'm starting to see in her book. And I don't think that she intended that. So it's something that it's it's bringing to me that I don't think she wrote. (laughs) So it's just kind of that interesting experience to to be aware of that as I'm reading it. Yeah, I love that. You know, and I, I find it so interesting that, you know, we we both struggled with this idea of divinity. Yes. You know, throughout this process. I'm hearing you come back to it. You know, like you keep coming back to this idea of divinity and seeing it in spaces where, I don't know, maybe you didn't see it before. Maybe it was there, but you didn't define it as divinity. Yeah, maybe so. I, I, I haven't, I'm not clear on it yet, but it's, mm-hmm. it's there. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're circling this idea. Mm-hmm. There's something in there for you. Yeah. So it's interesting. I like that. But, yeah. but again, it's not what she's writing about. It's just what's no. there for me. Right. It's what you see, you know, and, and you see everything reflected through your experience, yeah. you know. So I don't know. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. But the idea of the Beatles being just a band. Yeah. Just a band. <laughs> just a band, you know? man. Just but I mean, he's right. He's right. They were just a band. Like, I like the Beatles, you know, I would say as much as the next girl, probably not as much as the next girl. I'm not like, I like the Beatles, you know. I, I don't see them as the big transformative, you know, like experience that, that a lot of other people have. And that's OK, mm-hmm. you know, because I listened to Huey Lewis in the news. That was my big transformative thing <laughs> in high school. Like we're all different, you know. Um, but uh, but I, I do like this idea that we were just a band. Like what happens with your work and with what you do, that outcome is it doesn't really it's not about you. Right. You know, and being able to keep that we were just a band idea even after the greatness has hit, which granted, most of us don't ever have to deal with. So there's that. But, you know, <laughs> to be able to keep that understanding, I think that the reason why a lot of people who have greatness end up going crazy, you know, yeah. losing their like you see this all the time, like, you know, people just lose their minds. Right. Is because they cannot remember that they were just a band. Right. You know, this is all this is all it is and not to take it too seriously and not to to kind of wallow in your own royalty you know Mm -hmm. Uh, people may elevate you but that doesn't mean that you need to be where they elevate you that's that's their perception of you you know who you really are and how you really live is an entirely different thing and staying grounded in that I think is really important so one of the things that I really loved that I thought was hilarious was this idea of the the radiation canary yeah Because he goes through the, she goes through this whole thing from 30 Rock, you know, where Jack Donaghy was talking to Liz Lemon about like, you know, her value in the universe and what would happen in an apocalypse. And I've always like, I've been saying for years in an apocalypse, I'd be like the first one off the life. Me too. Because what are my, what are my valuable skills? Like nothing. I can't even start a fire. Me neither. I mean, I, I'm like, I can't, I have like flammable things. You know, I never worry about my house burning down because I go out into the backyard with dry wood and newspaper and cardboard and, and very flammable things and I still cannot get a fire to start so I think that I have like a natural fire dampening like aura around me or something (laughs) Um, but like I can't even do that like I have no useful survival skills whatever I'm a bard you know that's basically what I am Um, and and, you know and she goes into this whole thing about like how much do the arts really matter like they don't matter you know and 
But the, the funny thing is, and, and we go through this, this paradox, and we're going to get to this at the end, you know, that, that it doesn't matter, but it matters so much right. at the same time, you know, and, um, and I think that the arts matter a great deal because it speaks to purpose. Like every human being has spent some portion of their life, and for some, it is all of their life, pondering this idea of the purpose of human existence. We live, we die. What is the point, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think arts speak to that purpose, you know, um, from a million different perspectives. And that's so incredibly important. And it may be the most important thing, you know, but any one creative person, any one creative work, it's just a drop of water in an ocean, you know? So the individual drop is not a big deal. It's the ocean that is the big deal. And when you create, you set your voice to harmonize with the rest of humanity and all of these voices together tell that story of human purpose so it's important but it's also unimportant at the same time (laughs) um and so i find that like a really it's a difficult like space to see where you fall on that you know i mean what did you think about it so i really love this section Mm -hmm. um on page 128 she said the fact that i get to spend my life making objectively useless things means that i don't live in a post-apocalyptic dystopia yeah. it means that uh-huh. i am not exclusively changed to the grind of mere survival mm-hmm. and i have been a single mother for almost 19 years though yeah. longer if you count the pregnancy for which i was also alone so i know from survival mode mm-hmm. and in my last checkup before my son was born my obgyn was called out on an emergency delivery and I had to wait in the office for about three hours. Oh, my God. And someone had left this battered old paperback copy of Brave New World in the waiting oh room my on top of the magazine. And I read the whole thing. <laughs> and I swear, it saved part of me that day. And, wow. like, I had always liked dystopia, but I didn't really understand it as a genre. Mm-hmm. But after that, like, I started studying it and reading it. And it was such a solace to me. Because no matter how hard my life was or how tired I was, dystopian stories were a comfort. And mm-hmm. I am so grateful to the writers who brought them to life. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a badass, but I would not survive 10 minutes in The Hunger Games. You oh, know? my God, no. I would be the <laughs> so, first dead person oh, in yeah, the story. I would be, yes. like, if there's a zombie apocalypse, y'all just go ahead and sacrifice me at the beginning. Because exactly. I'm going to be useless. But, they can just distract themselves with, yes. with me. Right. Yes, because... Uh, seriously, yeah. I will be useless. Me too. Yeah. But I love this disjuncture of being able to create dystopia because we're free to dance with our creativity because we do not, in fact, live in a dystopia. Not yet. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jed Bartlett is my president, baby. <laughs> Jed Bartlett is my president. <laughs> then on page 128, she said, our creativity is a wild and unexpected bonus from the universe. And I just love this so hard. Yeah, I love that too. That I picked out that quote as well because I just thought it was so wonderful. And she, she goes on with, it's as if all our gods and angels gathered together and said, it's tough down there as a human being. We know. Here, have some delights. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. No, it's nice. And then we move, of course, right into high stakes versus low stakes, <laughs> which like for anybody who's been complaining about how tough it is to create. And she starts talking about, you know, page 129. There are people out there who bravely and stubbornly continue to make art despite living under God awful totalitarian regimes. And those people are heroes and we should all bow down to them, you know. Yes. And uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, let's just take a moment and remember that there are places in the world where being creative and expressing 
you know, your, your real thoughts and your real feelings on the world and how it works and what it means can be, you know, endanger your life. I mean, it can be really, really risky. And you have to think about that, you know, and kind of keep that in context Mm -hmm. when you talk about, oh, God, it's so hard. Or being a woman who reads, you know, might be a death Mm -hmm. sentence. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible. So, um, you know, on page 130, she says, so let's try to wrap our minds around this reality. There's probably never going to be any such thing in your life or mine as an arts emergency. Mm -hmm. That being the case, why not make art? Yes. I love this. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote, there's no such thing as a PhD emergency. Mm -hmm. Like I was joking. um, There's kind of this joke in my field about getting on an airplane and someone being like, is there a doctor on this plane? We have an emergency conference citation needed before this presenter lands. Because like, there's just no urgency in this work. <laughs> you know, there's just not. And it's incredibly humbling. <laughs> yeah. No, it can be. And I think it's important to, to have that humility. You know, I think it's, it's important because it gives you perspective. But it's also important because... You just, you can't take it that seriously. Right, right. You know? Yep. And I I love that idea of not being too seriously when she talked about Tom Waits. Oh, Um, yeah. And and Mm -hmm. I love music, and I love hearing the stories behind songs. Mm -hmm. And um, she quoted him on page 133. He said, as a songwriter, the only thing I really do is make jewelry for the inside of other people's minds. Music is nothing more than decoration for the imagination. And I just went swoon. Like, <laughs> I love this so much. Aww. You know, decoration yeah. for the imagination, jewelry for the inside of people's minds. Like, it's so beautiful. It is a really nice way to express it and to, to give a context for what it is that he does. Because Tom Waits, you know, it's a big deal. Yeah. Like people, you know, people make a big deal out of Tom Waits and his work, you know, and I, I actually like him quite a bit. So, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, but you know, he's got, and I love this, he did this externalizing. And I think he may have been where Elizabeth Gilbert got that idea because she said that she had, you know, interviewed him some years ago. Yeah. You know, and he externalized this idea of the, the idea and the song. The mm-hmm. song will come to me. And if the song isn't serious, I'm like, we're getting down the car in 15 minutes. You're in or you're out, right. you know? When he said, and then he just go, lets it go. When he was like, go bother Leonard Cohen. Exactly. I, just, <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I love that. But I mean, that's very close to the philosophy of, of inspiration that she's come to. Yes. And I imagine that he was a big inspiration in that. I would think so too. I would think so too. So. So this brings us to the last section. Yes. And the central paradox. Mm -hmm. Right. So on page 134, she said, in conclusion, then art is absolutely meaningless. It is, however, also deeply meaningful. That's a paradox, of course, but we're all adults here and I think we can handle it. I think we can hold two mutually contradictory ideas at the same time without our heads exploding. And I was like, yes, please. This for me is play. (laughs) This is fun. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Uh, On page 136, she says, it matters, it doesn't matter. Build space in your head for this paradox. Build as much space for it as you can. Build even more space. You will need it. And then go deep within that space, as far in as you can possibly go, and make absolutely whatever you want to make. It's nobody's business but your own. Amen. I love that. I love that. I know. That's like a hallelujah moment. I was like. Drop the book, baby. There you go. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But I did like on page 135, she did kind of add this little caveat to that. And she said, 
I care because I want it to be lovely. Mm-hmm. And I was like, me too. So And that's okay. You know, there yeah. is this ability to be like, yes, have this carelessness, but but still be able to hold and recognize the fact that I do want it to be lovely. Right. You know? And and discipline. Yeah. You know, I mean, like the holding yourself to a creative discipline that like when you know your work can be better, it is your job to be your own Werner Herzog. Right. You know, it is your job to kick yourself in the ass if there's nobody <laughs> else there to tell you you can do better than that. You know, um, and I think it is a really difficult kind of space. It's 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 a balance, mm-hmm. you know, that you kind of have to hold that you shouldn't take it seriously. It's not a big deal. Just do the thing. And at the same time, it is the most important thing in human existence. Yeah. Like, I just love a good I mean, paradox. I, just, I think so, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I think it's great. And it's it's difficult to kind of, you know, it's it's so much easier to put your back up against like a very firm philosophy that says yes. this is the way it is and that's it, you know? And especially in creative fields, I know, I, I've seen this a lot where people just want to know, they want to know what page should they have their inciting incident? What page should they have their first act turn? Yes. You know, how should they count this all out? Exactly how many of these scenes do there need to be? Like this whole thing, you know? And there is some of that, you know, within writing. There's structure and there's narrative theory. But, but the thing is, is that, a structure and narrative theory, which is my life's work, by the way. I mean, I've spent all my time figuring out how narrative works, regardless of form, you know, mm-hmm. like independent of form. What are the things that all narrative has in common? And I've been building up this theory forever, and it is truly, truly important to me. But while this is what I teach and in my class, this is what I need them to show me they know it is the least important thing. This is this just all it does is provide a delivery system for whatever your personal creativity is, right. you know, like understanding the rules of the discipline is just allowing that delivery system. That is not the thing. Mm-hmm. The thing is what you put on that so that you can move it down the track. The thing is what you, it makes it accessible right. to other people. And that's what that does. That's what that discipline does. So I think that discipline is really important. It's important to understand the form that you're working with, whatever it is that you're working with. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's that paradox. It's so important and it doesn't matter. Right. You're farming you know? with fairy dust. Yeah. I love farming it. with fairy dust. I know. <laughs> so what was your big aha? What was your big idea for the week? Oh God. You know, it's, it's that paradox. It matters and it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm kind of loving that. Um, this part of the book removes a weight from creative endeavors, you know? Yeah. And I think that that is really important to take that weight off. And at the same time, like, treating it like it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter but knowing how important it is because it's so important at the same time um and that just it kind of tickles me yeah you know it, it's I find that somewhat diverting and delightful mm-hmm. I love that yeah how about you so on page 119 she said by saying that you delight in your work you will draw inspiration near inspiration will be grateful to hear the words coming out of your mouth because inspiration like all of us appreciates being appreciated and I was like, inspiration has a love language. <laughs> yes, inspiration does have a love language. So I've been thinking a lot about love languages mm-hmm. and words of affirmation is mine. And so I was just like, mm-hmm. inspiration has must say love language. <laughs> I love that. So it just delighted me. It was just kind of oh, fun to, nice. to think about that, you know. That's nice. Yeah. No, I like that. So that was really good. What about your strong challenge? What did you resist? Oh, God, same thing. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You know, like the the idea that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Yet I think it's the most important thing in the world. Right. 
you know? And so for me, it's, it's, I'm resisting the same thing that I'm loving, which is, it's, it's entirely a paradox, like this whole part of it. Um, And it is holding those two mutually exclusive thoughts at the same time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is, uh, is, is kind of fun. And also like, it makes me want to stand up and be like, no, (laughs) (laughs) it matters, you know? Um, But I think it's just, it's so important to not take what we create too seriously. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 kind of fun. Like this this whole space going into the space and and coming out with feeling so strongly about two mutually exclusive ideas is has been kind of fun. Yeah. I think it's fun. Mm-hmm. I think it's fun. So, how about you? What did you resist? So, on page 120, she said, "I beg you not to worry about such definitions and distinctions, then, okay?" <laughs> It will, tell Dr. Kelly Jones uh-huh. not to worry about defining things. Right? Yeah. It will only weigh you down and we need we need you to stay as light and unburdened as possible in order to keep you creating. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> like she literally the queen just told of me, define your terms, right? right? She literally just told me not to define my terms. <laughs> like what the hell? Oh my god. So, I mean, really? <laughs> I, just, I love it. Yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> just, like, sure, this will be me walking around, yeah. not defining my terms. Here I am, not defining them, because yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert told me no. Yeah, that shit so, is never right. going to happen. <laughs> but it did Don't crack me up. Don't get weighed down with definitions and distinctions, Dr. Jones. I can't do it. <laughs> but I can laugh at myself for not being able to do it. Yeah, you know, and that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what's your big yes? What's your action this week? Oh, God. You know, I've got to get back to the basics. I'm just going to find joy in the creation of one thing. This week, I had such a terrible week, and it was so bad, and I was curled up in the fetal position for much of yesterday, but I sat and I watched um, a TV show, a very silly TV show called uh, Great News, which is actually um, created by Tina Fey, and yeah. it's uh, it's about a newsroom, and it's it's very fun, and it's got a very 30 Rock kind of sensibility to it, yeah. you know, um, which was exactly what I needed, something light and, and fun and, you know, something that wasn't going to challenge me or make me cry, you know. Um, and while I was doing that, I finished a pair of socks that I've been working on seriously since April. Oh, <laughs> they're, they're Easter socks. That's great. Like, it's Easter <laughs> socks with Easter colors of these pastels, you know? And, uh, and so I finally finished those socks and I was like, okay, you know, I've created something, you know? So, um, so I think I'm going to try to put my creativity into the knitting this week. I'm going to try to watch TV, watch as many, I, I've pretty much watched every sitcom I think that isn't like you know a terrible scratchy sitcom full of terrible people which I just I can't like you know every every you know well-intentioned sitcom I think that exists out there I've watched and I'm just gonna have to go back and start watching them over again um and and knit and like that was how I got through the early days of this whole thing and I think I'm gonna have to go back to that Mm -hmm. um and and do some creative stuff that that is just simple and that I know how to do like I can knit a pair of socks in my sleep I knit so many socks so I'm gonna knit a pair of socks and I'm gonna relax and I'm just gonna do my thing and create something and and have that be the thing that I work on this week and and having created something that'll be my stepping stone to to diving deeper into things that are a little more challenging good I think that's yeah how about you so she talked in here about play Um, yeah on page 128 she said all it does is make me want to play and I was like, me too? <laughs> but I don't really know how. Like, 
the idea of holding a paradox in my mind is play. I don't think right. that's what she means. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> my creative work so far has been all kinds of wonderful music mm-hmm. and poetry and writing, but it's also deep and romantic and sort of earnest because I am deep and romantic and sort of earnest. <laughs> and so I think I need to do something playful. And, like, even the, roma- mm. the rainbow bookcase doesn't count because while it might have been frivolous, I took it seriously. And I don't know what, un- like, lighthearted, unserious, playful looks like. Yeah. But I have a son <laughs> who is my opposite in every way. And I think I will put him in charge of this week's homework. I like so it. So it will probably involve video games. <laughs> I like it. But we'll see how that it goes. That would be great. Yes, definitely. I love that. Indulgence and play. Yeah. That'll be fun. So we'll see. This, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so each week we, we close with a quote. And in the spirit of us all dancing with our creativity and the magical ideas of the universe on good days and bad in deepness and in lightness, today's closing quote comes from the poet Rumi who said, Watch the dust grains moving in the light near the window. Their dance is our dance. We rarely hear the inward music, but we're all dancing to it nevertheless. Directed by the one who teaches us, the pure joy of the sun, our music master. Big Strong Yes is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely funded by listeners like you. To find out how you can support Big Strong Yes and everything Chipperish Media does, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Thanks, y'all.